everybody, it's Dominique. And I'm Isha. Welcome back to the Founders Roundtable. Our guest for this episode is really special to both of us because in some way, shape, or form, she has influenced us in choosing the paths that we are on today. Mary Jo Upshaw is really a movement leader in the social impact space, and she has worked tirelessly for over 30 years to launch and lead programs, scale her family business, and guide the next generation of impact leaders at Wayne State University's School of Social Work and School of Business. Today, she's sharing with us her story from the very beginning to where she is now, conducting research as a PhD candidate to understand barriers to entrepreneurship for marginalized communities and increase awareness around trauma for business and social enterprise developers. I am so excited to have a dear friend of mine joining us today. She is the powerhouse who has led financial services at Goodwill Industries in Wisconsin in programs such as a consumer credit counseling agency and micro enterprise development program. Instead of stopping after her wide range of accomplishments, she kept on going in order to foster young leaders at Wayne State University by organizing an annual social entrepreneurship conference, sponsoring development courses for social entrepreneurs, and highlighting leaders through a social work startup story night. We don't want to give too much away, but all in all, this is a leader who is passionate about impact, and we have learned so much from her. We hope that this conversation gives you all the chance to do the same. I I think we met about five years ago. I can't even believe that it's been that long ago. But I remember um, when I was transitioning from working full time, going into my program, I was freaking out and I started researching professors at Wayne State that did some type of work within the refugee immigrant population. And so I always tell people, like, go to the school for the professors, not just, you know, for the school so you can really learn and grow under someone um, during your time there. So. I couldn't believe it, but I stumbled across this professor named Mary Jo Upshaw. And at the time, I believe you were on a board um, for a refugee organization. And so I was like, oh, I got to talk to her. So I ended up meeting you. I had coffee. I told you about this idea I had to help um, refugees. And literally from there, you have been such a huge support system for me, advocate, term mentor, colleague, friend, like someone that I go to for advice and just help overall, just huge, huge advocate. And I always tell people like, it's nothing like having an advocate that speaks for you when you aren't in the room. That's so powerful, you know, to me. So can you give us more of an idea of what did it look like as um, a little girl, uh, Mary Jo, I know you have a large family to, to kind of like who you are now. How did, how did, was there any correlation Well, my mom was a social worker. And so I think that my mom had a really heavy influence on like my value system growing up about, I'm very committed to uh, individuals and groups that experience uh, marginalization and and, um, 
who are disenfranchised. And so I, I know I can directly tie that back to my mom and her influence as a social worker and working with many populations that experience discrimination and oppression, whether it's persons with mental health issues, persons with differing uh, physical abilities, um, persons who experience poverty. And so I know I got those values from my mom and, and also around race too. I had some really formidable things happen to me uh, when I was young uh, around race with uh, persons my mom was was working with. And I think it forever shaped my you know, experience and attitudes about racial justice. And so I always think every day, and my mom was also the real entrepreneur and um, uh, she was the true entrepreneur because I started with her really early in my social work career as uh, we, she started a social work staffing agency. Well, she started a larger agency. We did clinical practice and we did staffing as a piece of what we did. So she was the true entrepreneur because it was her capital, her idea, you know, her, but working with her in this kind of fast growth startup agency certainly forever shaped my career trajectory in, in social work. Even though we're really entrepreneurial in social work, we have a really long history of being entrepreneurs all the way back to the settlement house movement and Jane Addams. We're not thought of as entrepreneurs. Um, the kind of venturing that we do is not thought of as entrepreneurship. And I think that's similar for other uh, predominantly female professions like nursing and education and the humanities. And so, um, so I had this great role model and the other great thing about uh, working in this fast growth uh, business was that everything I know about entrepreneurship and business is kind of grounded in practice and actual practice. I, I work and, you know, read a lot of the research now, but having that grounding of what it's like, you know, to be an entrepreneur, to try to secure resources, to try to figure out your operations, to experience, um, personnel issues and all of these things are, you know, come from real life experience. And so I think that's really, you know, kind of vitally important. So, but at this point in my career, it's really like giving back. It's like this new generation of entrepreneurs like yourself. And so I'm really excited. I mean, that's where I get my kind of passion now is how can um, whatever I've experienced, whatever I've had an opportunity to do, you know, how can I help move along the knowledge and the skill base of the next generation of entrepreneurs. And fortunately, like when we started our business back 30 plus years, there wasn't a field called social entrepreneurship. We were out there as social workers kind of creating something that looked a little different than the traditional commercial enterprise that was very value-based, very much a demonstration project for the field of social work about what we could do with social work products and services. Um, and now, you know, the world has caught up and we have this defined field of social entrepreneurship, but we were really innovating back then. It was when you were a social worker in practice, you either worked for an agency full-time or maybe you started a private practice, but all the other areas of entrepreneurship, like being an entrepreneur inside of a existing nonprofit or, um, being a, a movement entrepreneur, which we have a lot of social workers who, you know, would fall into that category, really weren't considered entrepreneurship because we didn't have this thing that we had labeled social entrepreneurship that would really describe what we were doing. So 
Um, but I really owe so much to my mom and she's passed away now, but you know, every day I, I think about her and I think about like, what would she do in this situation? Fortunately, the profession is kind of caught up to social entrepreneurship and my mom's been recognized as a pioneer of, uh, from the National Association of Social Work for the work that she had has had done in terms of like developing uh, social work entrepreneurship. So I feel good about that. But I was probably a really early entrepreneur and I didn't know it, you know, uh, I remember <laughs> talking about early experiences. I remember one day both my parents worked, which was kind of unusual at, in uh, my age group to have a mother that worked outside of the home. You know, I'm about ready to be 60. So I was one of uh, the few friends that whose mother worked outside of the home. And so she would leave every day. They both would leave for work, my parents. And one day I just decided I'm going to do this lemonade stand out front. So, you know, I took out all my stuff for the lemonade. I don't even know what this lemonade tasted like because I was making it at like six years old and I had my little table. I was quite the branding, you know, person. I have a little vase with flowers in it. I have my little handmade sign. And uh, this little town I grew up in, Kansas, the photographer for the where the daily like city newspaper came by and snapped a shot of my lemonade stand. And I was on the front page of the newspaper the next day when my parents, oh, you know, went to look to read the newspaper. Here I am with my lemonade stand because I'd packed it all up and took all my profits and like put them in my pocket and never even told my parents I was running a business out of the front yard. So that was probably my first experience and I still kind of save that picture when I want to be nostalgic of me with my little pigtails and my lemonade stand. <laughs> so, but I know I got that kind of sense of building things for my mom. She was like a true builder. So she got bored with things really easy if she wasn't building new things. And I, I definitely can trace back, you know, that to my mom. So very fortunate. The research actually shows that most entrepreneurs do have a family member, um, you know, that there's a, uh, a high correlation between starting something and having a family member that either ran a business or started a business. And so that's one of the things that we see in the research about entrepreneurship and business. So I love that. Oh, my goodness. Over the past well, it's six months or so that we've really been um, having the privilege to chat with founders. We always hear that it was lemonade, candy. Uh, they started somewhere, clothing. So it's always so interesting to kind of hear that origin story. Like, where did you start? Um, I remember that my first business was called Golden Catering for the Soul. And I was selling these like chicken wraps at one of the food um, you know, like those vendor shows and things. So I just, I don't know who's wrong with me. I just go and tell my mom, I'm like, hey, this is what this is what we're going to do. We're going to go down to the Eastern Market. I got this really great idea. And she's like, all right, let's go. And so we buy all this food, pack the cooler up. And I'm literally just out there selling it until like a guy stopped me. He's like, you need a vendor's license for this. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like this is illegal. So um, no, I just always love hearing that. And you know, I admire your story so much because I feel that you are you are always so curious and fearless. And hearing more about 
just how you grew up with such a large family to things that you underwent, like getting your your BSW. Can you tell us more about what that looked like for you um, and and why that was such a such a special moment, I think, in your life? Well, I went and did all of my, um, the downside of having a social worker for a mom is like, hey, you're good no matter what you do. So it was never drilled into me, like you're going to college (laughs) and then you're going to grad school. Like now with my kids, it's like, what grad school are you going to? It's not even what uh, undergrad you're getting. And I think that's just a reality of our, you know, where we're at in in terms of our economy and being a very competitive labor market. So no, it wasn't easy getting my BSW because I already had a child, uh, you know, at that time. And um, I would go to school on, you know, nights and weekends. I mean, fortunately, they had made it a, a little easier to get a BSW at that time. They had a program. I started out in community college, which was, you know, something I still talk to students about because the value of, of community colleges is so great in terms of accessibility. And then, um, you know, all the nights and weekends and fortunately had some really uh, wonderful role models as professors. I remember one night I couldn't get any daycare for my for my son, um, you know, who was probably a an elementary about an elementary age. And so I, I dragged him to my sociology class with me. And you know, the, the professor was so great because he he researched um, carnivals and uh, that was one of his areas of research and, and he was a magician, so he did magic tricks. And so here's my son thinking, oh, college is so cool. You get to do magic tricks and you have, and that son now is a high powered attorney. So I think it kind of set him on his way to, towards the importance of education as well. And he spent a couple of years as a teacher and Teach for America um, as well. So. You know, I've been really fortunate that I've just had so many people along the way of my education that have meant, you know, been supportive and meant so much. And I try to pay that forward with other people. I think it's really important. So. And it was so awesome to hear also the story about how you were able to influence your son. And, um, you know, Dom taught me so much about you before this episode, like things I didn't know, which you also mentioned, like how your mom was a social worker. And just to see like how she inspired you and then how you then also passed your influence on to your son was like really um, amazing to hear. So I see that entrepreneurial spirit sort of being passed down and that social worker spirit. Um, I want to talk more about in detail about running and scaling your family startup. So we'd love for you to tell us the story of how social work PRN um, was born, the journey you went on to grow it? Sure. Well, my mom uh, had really piloted the project. She was a hospital social work director in the Kansas City area where I'm from. And she started out as the lone social worker of a community-based hospital that was rapidly growing. And it was there, she looked over to nursing and saw that nursing had this thing like flexible staffing where they would bring in nurses when uh, someone was out, you know, to work a shift or when someone was on vacation or when they needed to fill a position. She thought, well, that would work for social work. You know, why, why couldn't we do that for social work? And she had started as a lone social worker and she grew a huge department. She had like um, 
20 social workers in her department. They ran the mental health services. She staffed all the social workers for the mental health units, for the medical surgical units. She started an employee assistance program when she was there. So she was a builder. She was building. She was that example of an uh, entrepreneur inside, a social entrepreneur inside of an existing nonprofit entity. And so it was there she started working with this kind of float staff. She developed a float staff of social workers. And it was, you know, classically we're trying to, in entrepreneurship and business, we're trying to fill unmet needs, you know, try to identify what those unmet needs are and then develop a product or service that fills it. And at the time, social work is a predominantly female profession. And um, women have a lot of demands, you know, on their time in terms of family demands. And so a lot of uh, social workers wanted to be working, but they didn't want to work full time. They either wanted to be, you know, home in the summer when their when their children were home, or uh, they, uh, you know, needed kind of uh, time ins and times outs. They just didn't want to be committed to a full time position. And so here they had the organization had a need to bring in social workers on a flexible basis and the workers had a need for something outside of full-time agency-based practice and so just you know it was a mutual fit there between what organizations were needing and what the profession was needing and no one had really identified it we were the first uh social work staffing agency in the company uh, in the country to uh, develop out of the kansas city area and so she knew it would work because she had piloted it when she was at uh, this local hospital. And it was, you know, somewhere in her career when she knew, hey, she wasn't gonna be able to grow any more social workers at the hospital that she decided I'm gonna go out and do this on my own. You know, I'm gonna venture out and start a practice. And I'm not gonna start a practice that looks like a traditional private practice. Although my mom was a psychotherapist and she did private practice work. But she really valued like social work knowledge and education and skills and uh, thought, you know, we can develop products for the market so we can take our knowledge and whatever product is out there, we can kind of fill it. So we did a lot of things. We had a clinical practice. Staffing was uh, one piece of it. We did um, assessments for nursing homes where people had a major mental health diagnosis and were placed in a nursing home. We did employee assistance work. So uh, we did that. Uh, counseling for a lot of large uh, EAP programs, and we were their, their uh, branch office in the Kansas City area. But the staffing piece kept growing, and so uh, it kept growing, and here we were in Kansas City, and, you know, social workers were mobile, so someone came in from Chicago and said, hmm, we don't have anything like this in Chicago. So we said to ourselves, well, Chicago is just like Kansas City. It's just like, you know, five times bigger than Kansas City. So we can go to Chicago and do this. It was Midwestern. We understood the Midwest. And so we picked a really great social work town because Chicago is a storied social work town with some excellent schools of social work and some social workers that have amazing skills. And so that was our second office opening outside of the Kansas City area. It was about four years into our development. And that's when we peeled off the social work PR and the staffing piece from everything else we did in clinical practice and really started building that and developing it. So every year we would have a new office in the pipeline. So we, you know, ended up growing into St. Louis and then um, 
uh, chronologically, I, I'm not, I don't quite remember the order of the offices, but we grow into Dallas, Fort Worth and Houston, New Jersey, New York, Atlanta, Atlanta came, became a really big office for us. We had some major contracts in child welfare and in school-based social work. So we just kept growing and we had a model, you know, that we developed, we'd hire an MSW social worker in every city that ran the office, who interviewed staff, who would go out and do a lot of education with settings about how do you use someone on a temporary basis. And we just kept filling a market need. And, you know, that organization has been in business now for 30 plus years, which is kind of unheard of, you know, when the high failure rate of businesses, we've employed thousands of social workers, you know, over the years and had some amazing staff, you know, that have been with us almost from the start. So feels really good to be a job creator, you know, for social workers and to, to fill a need. And social workers were also desperate to have something like of their own. We're so misunderstood as a profession, like very few people understand what we do, that we're the largest mental health profession in the country, that we deliver more clinical services than any other profession. Most people think it's psychiatry or, or psychology, but it's really clinical social work. So we also filled these unmet needs for affiliation and supervision and like promoting the profession. And so it was much more than a staffing agency. It was really about, again, this demonstration project for the field. And, um, you know, it was amazing. Loved working in it. Worked in it uh, nearly 20 years, you know, before I went back and um, started doing some other things in the field. So really fortunate experience. And again, you know, um, just kind of set me for where I'm at today in terms of my research interest around entrepreneurship, particularly women's entrepreneurship and in uh, that area and social work entrepreneurship. So I wanted to ask you more about scaling and what it was about I guess the strategies that you employed as a leader um, to scale into all of those cities and if there are any main takeaways that you can share with people who are trying to scale into multiple cities or even um, thinking about like going out of the country, like what were those key takeaways and strategies that you employed? Yeah, well, a couple. Um, let me talk a little bit about challenges first, and then then I'll move to scale. Because um, I think you really have to have your model down before you decide to scale. It's interesting. I just lectured on scaling last night uh, around social impact scaling, and you know when when to do it and what the challenges could be. And there's a little pushback about scale right now too. So I know it's one of the things we think a lot about in business, but there's some pushback to it, particularly around social entrepreneurship, around more place-based and scaling. Um, are we scaling just to grow? Or are we scaling uh, and keeping that impact you know, front and center? So, but a, a few of the struggles before I uh, first talk about scaling, and I will we'll talk about it in our own experience, but uh, one of the struggles we had was around like legitimacy. There's, there's a theory in organizational practice around, um, it's the theory of institutionalism. And the theory uh, kind of goes that uh, there's certain institutional norms and practices and procedures. And the more you as an organization mimic those institutional norms, the more accepted you are. So no one in the field of social work knew what we were doing. So it was really hard in the beginning. Like we had to do 
so much education because you know social workers work for agencies or they work for private practice but no one was doing what we did and um there's really some pushback you know when you're doing something brand new people you know can't figure out what you're doing they get a little nervous about what you're doing and so that was one of the huge barriers i mean now looking back i can almost be nostalgic but it wasn't fun at the time, you know, to feel like you're an outlier in your own profession that you love so much, you know, and people are, um, you know, almost critical. Like you had to do so, it's interesting because the social workers were never critical. Like the people who wanted this, you know, the availability to do it, but our major institutions were very critical. And I feel like any of us that are innovating run up against that, you know, we run up against these institutional barriers and people don't quite understand the innovation that we're doing. And it's, you know, it's it's an uncomfortable place to be, but you gotta kind of push through it. And, you know, your North Star is that you're passionate as an entrepreneur about what you're doing does have an impact, you know, it has a significant impact and that you're adding value. So you you gotta kind of stick to that. But that was a barrier. The other barrier, because because we were innovating and doing something different. Whenever you're developing a new product or service, you know, you can't rely on existing market research and knowledge you got to kind of go out there and test things and pioneer and then you know take that data and then build a model from it so that was a little challenging and the whole issue about uh, adoption of a product or service was challenging because no one had really used social workers on a temporary basis before so that just means you have to do a lot more i mean if i was talking like a commercial entrepreneur i would say marketing uh, if I'm talking like a social worker, I would say we need to do a lot more education and awareness, like how do you use, when are the opportunities you use, and so it's a lot more labor intensive than when you know that there's a known market for something, and so I think this is always a challenge of those innovators that are out there innovating. And then the third uh, issue that directly relates to scaling, so those were all about building our model, testing our model, making sure our model worked before we started replicating in other areas, because that was our, our strategy about scaling. It's like take your proven model and replicate in another branch location, right? In another geographical area, there's other ways to scale, but at that time, that was our model. Um, but capital, a lot of us experience, you know, barriers to capital and that becomes the big barrier around scaling. And we definitely experience that, you know, um, despite all the emphasis that a lot of research and uh, even when you, you know, are an MBA program places on venture capital, that's not how most entrepreneurs, you know, find funding and grow. They find it through borrowing, you know. Um, after they've, you know, have a proven model where they've got a track record, it's really through, you know, borrowing. And so uh, we did not have the right uh, relationship with a bank. And that's one thing I would encourage all new entrepreneurs, you know, is to start developing those relationships with financial institutions that understand what they're doing, because you don't want to, you know, try to develop your relationship with a bank when you need money, you want to develop a, you know, ongoing and we were with a bank, very big bank in our area, but they understood manufacturing. They really didn't understand service-based businesses. And we definitely experienced discrimination as being a woman-owned business. Like they kind of prayed out all the women, you know, to you, but to be your direct liaison, but none of those women were in decision-making power. None of them had decision-making power over our loan process. And they had so over-collateralized, you know, like I think it, 
one point my parents had their house up, you know, as collateral, which they really didn't need to do. My, we had a track record. We had, you know, a large pool of accounts receivable that could have been collateral. So they had totally over collateralized us. And um, we, you know, ended up, we got smart, you know, uh, and just said, this is not the bank for us. So we went and found another bank that understood service that had women in, you know, major decision-making roles about the loans. And there's still the bank, you know, that, that Social Work PRN still uses today. And so that's a word of advice, like really shop around. Um, women and uh, persons of color definitely experience discrimination in terms of raising capital and particularly borrowing. Um, but they also just, they, uh, a lot of it in venture capital as well. So women are funded much less than men are. And there's a lot of research to support this. And so... I think you have to really um, be savvy and, you know, go around, develop your relationship and make sure you're getting your needs met, you know, um, and unfortunately, you know, structurally there is sexism and there is racism. And so individuals, you know, we're trying to, to deal with that at the structural level, but in the interim, individuals have to learn to advocate for themselves and to kind of push past. There's some research that Black Americans who are business owners won't even go in and ask for a loan for fear that they're going to be denied. So based on, you know, historical racism around, um, you know, funding all the way back to redlining and, and uh, homeownership. And so, so these are, you know, kinds of things we need to do a lot more education and awareness. We need to break down the barriers and people, you know, really need to be able to advocate. So critically important. So after we overcome all those things, you know, scaling was really about this model around replicating. So we had a proven formula. We knew exactly how much revenue we need to bring in for an office, you know, to break even. And, you know, what our staffing pattern would look like, what you do when you go into a market, you know, classic for social work. It's like you do a needs assessment, you know, figure out geographically what looks like a good market. So good markets for us were, you know, some market of some size a market that had strong schools of social work because it was really important to have access to the, you know, to the uh, potential talent pool that we would be recruiting from. So strong schools of social work were really important. Strong licensure was important because that tended to correlate with higher salaries. So it was really challenging in markets where, you know, salaries weren't good for social workers because we always would go in and try to understand what the salary base looked like to establish our own salaries across fields of practice. So, you know, we just developed a formula. We developed our operation model and then we would replicate it. And that's the way that we scaled. We weren't always successful. You know, like um, LA was a huge bomb for us, uh, second largest city in the country, you know, <laughs> um, huge bomb for us for a variety of reasons. And so, um, but, you know, you learn from those failures, too. And I think that's something that we don't embrace enough in the nonprofit world that we do embrace in the for-profit world is like learning from failures, you know, and that uh, everyone's got their failure story. And so um, I wish I was just talking to my class last night about that, that I wish we the reason we don't see big, bold moves in the nonprofit world is it's so discouraged to fail. Whereas in the for-profit world, we're almost celebrated for failing, you know, if we can pick ourselves up and, and figure out, you know, how to take those failures and learn from them. So, yeah. No, that's absolutely true. Um, we had a whole series that was talking about um, 
failing forward when we kind of started this whole concept of having discussions with other founders and that was back in the beginning of 2021 but i think yeah that there is a huge distinction between like how failure is encouraged in one area and it's not in the other and i don't think we talk to i don't know if we talk to any actually um leaders of nonprofits like obviously Dominique was one of the co-hosts and so she like had the expertise in that area um whenever we would have a discussion but that's I think a really important thing to mention is and and hopefully the conversation changes around that yeah there's a great book uh, called uncharitable and it's one of the thought leaders that uh, criticizes some of our rationalized myths and in the nonprofit world that really need to be debunked if we're ever going to get at solving some of the social problems that that exist. And so I think it's it's really important. I mean, that's what I try to do in the classroom is is break down what, you know, some of these challenges are. I actually was going to ask you, um, I think you you are a really great example of creating a way when there is no way. I mean, and I've seen that being a professor, we had to pivot with projects to going into the social entrepreneurship committee, how we literally make something out of nothing. And you really, you are a phenomenal strategist. You lead the way in that. So um, I wanted you to talk about your experience at Goodwill, how you transitioned from the PRN role, then to creating a role, essentially that wasn't there, right, at Goodwill. So what did that look like? Because I think that's so encouraging for social workers who are very multidimensional, but I think we lack confidence to create the things that we want compared to other traditional business sectors. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I'm really glad that you asked me that question because uh, I have a big value about when there's not a job, you should create a job, whether you're doing that as an entrepreneur or whether you're doing it inside existing organizations. And so not just being reactive, but being proactive with how to use your knowledge and your skill set. So so I've traveled, I've lived all across the country because I um, have a spouse who um, you know, needed to be in, in different places to train for, for his career. So I've always been kind of scrappy about like, you know, how do you reinvent yourself in different markets? And so I ended up in a smaller market in Wisconsin. It was one of the best experiences I ever had. And so what I did is I, um, you know, I was transitioning. I had a BSW and I had an MBA. I just finished my MBA program or was close to finishing my MBA program. And I'm in this new market. And I and I had always worked around nonprofits, but I had never worked for a nonprofit. So I thought, hmm, well, you know, I know I, I need to be with an organization that's innovative. I just know that about me. I'm not going to work well in a bureaucratic structure. And so what I did was when I got to town, I just started interviewing. I asked people to go out to coffee. I I asked some um, a philanthropist in town, like who they saw as the most five most innovative people, you know, that were either running nonprofits or running foundations or you know something around the continuum, around the nonprofit world or philanthropy. So I got a list, you know, from some uh, storied philanthropists that I really trusted their judgment. They were innovative people. And I just started 
you know, inviting people to coffee and asking them to talk about what they did and kind of sharing my story. And so one of the folks I met was um, Bob Peterson, the CEO of uh, Goodwill Industries of North Central Wisconsin. And Bob is one of these people that if you're just blessed to meet in your lifetime, like he's a cross between, um, he was so successful at Goodwill when he started at, at this Goodwill. So Goodwill is a really large nonprofit. Goodwill uh, Industries International is a $6 billion a year nonprofit. It's not a small, and we're talking about less than 1% of nonprofits that, you know, ever scale even over the, um, you know, like the 50 million mark. And so um, 6 billion is huge. And so um, Bob took over this Goodwill which we were a Goodwill that had a 25 county area. So across the Goodwill system, there's all these, they they scale through um, a network model. So there's all these independent uh, 501c3 Goodwills, but they all bubble up into Goodwill International. So the Goodwill that I was at served a 25 county area and a really small market in, in Wisconsin, large territory, but very small market in terms of size, no, no great urban size over about 150,000 in any of those areas. And we were one of the top five Goodwills in the country. I mean, competing against really large markets. And I attribute all of this, you know, to Bob's vision about started there when it was like a $5 million operation and grew it into a $60 million operation. And we, you know, continually would be the leaders in these categories. So when I first met Bob, I was just so intrigued by him. One of the things I was intrigued by is they had been very transparent with a scandal that they had, a financial scandal that they had, where one of their accountants had been embezzling because she had a gambling problem. And instead of hiding it as an organization, they made it very transparent. They actually wrote, was one of the first things I read on their website, was this account of you know, how it affected them culturally as an organization. And I thought, you know, any kind of leadership that can withstand such a visible scandal, because right at the time they were dealing with this scandal, they were trying to sell back office support to other nonprofits. So um, we call it fiscal sponsorship. But, you know, at the time it was like hit at a really bad time. So a lot of organizations probably couldn't resist the temptation to hide it, which they could have hidden it. But instead they they learn from it. You know, they're very much a learning organization. So their cultural values as an organization were out front and center about how, how do you deal with the adversity that happens in organizations? And so when I read that, I'm like, you know, any organization that could withstand something like this and be so transparent and so uh, holistic is an organization I want to put my name with. And so I told Bob, you know, out of all the people I interviewed, it's like, what can I do? So I, um, they had a group of um, community folks who had started a reentry program for returning citizens who were uh, coming back from prison uh, and reintegrating in their communities. And they were a great group of uh, community professionals, but they were trying to figure out what their resource development looked like. So I just volunteered to do some grant writing for them and some resource development work. And that was my entry in as a volunteer. And from my experience working on that, Bob's like, you know, we're going to create this new position for you to match your skill set. Like we are trying to grow out our programs around asset building for uh, persons who have low income. 
and they had several programs under their portfolio and wanted to grow some more programs. And so I was hired on as their first leader of um, financial services, which were managing the portfolio programs. Uh, we had a consumer credit counseling program I was CEO of. Uh, we had a large tax site. We did 2000 tax returns for uh, persons uh, with low income, low to moderate income. Uh, and, and that program is really huge in terms of um, the earned income tax credit is the most successful anti-poverty program in the country. We don't think about taxes lifting people out of poverty, but it's by far the most successful program. So running that program was, and growing that program was a real, um, uh, just, I loved it. It was amazing work to do. And then I started a micro enterprise development program to help persons who, uh, you know, were starting very small businesses who needed uh, business development and technical assistance and access to capital. So just got to do a lot of great things under goodwill. And what what amazing social enterprise, like we talk about the field of social entrepreneurship now, it's about 30 years old, but goodwill's been doing this for over 100 years. They were the originator of how you're an enterprising nonprofit. The goodwill that I work for, we are about a $60 million goodwill. So again, in the top 1% of all nonprofits in the country and um, almost all of that revenue, we did, we did a lot of workforce development. We did get some, you know, grants and things for that, but almost a large percent of the revenue came from earned revenue from the, our retail operations. And I learned so much about retail because we had experts in retail. Uh, and it was just great to have that kind of capacity and to be around that energy of folks that were, you know, leading in their fields. So, yeah, so that was an example, but I often talk to people, you know, like, uh, you know, put your skill set out there, volunteer, you know, do something, you know, and let people, because despite all of the social networking and the big, you know, job site places, people still get their jobs through kind of good old fashioned networking, um, uh, social networking. And so, I think it's one way to kind of get your foot in the door with folks, um, you know, and show your skill set as a volunteer. So it was a great job and I loved it. And I loved, you know, having access to the Goodwill system and just learning about the Goodwill system and amazing, you know, kind of experience. So, I mean, with these previous experiences, you put your MBA and your MSW to work and then you kind of came over to Wayne um and you've launched and led various programs there too and we've worked together on some of those programs that have involved a lot of students um you know pitching themselves and um ventures or products that they've been working on so i wanted to ask you i mean over your entire career span you've obviously had lots of interactions where you've had to put yourself out there like you were saying and really um pitch yourself so before we dive into the programs that you've worked on at Wayne, I wanted to put you on the spot for a second and hopefully teach our listeners a little something about how to do a quick elevator pitch of yourself. So if you want to give us your elevator pitch and imagine we're just meeting you for the first time um, and then like walk us through the key components of how you would go about that for someone you're trying to build a relationship with. Yeah, so uh, I mean, parts of my elevator speech would be always important to introduce yourself. So hi, I'm Mary Jo Upshaw. My social work identity is huge. And so I usually, you know, introduce myself as a social worker and then talk about what I'm passionate about. I'm really passionate about trying to help entrepreneurs 
social entrepreneurs in particular uh, who experience barriers, you know, and who are working, trying to solve problems. And so that's, you know, my reason for my purpose, my reason for existing. And then, you know, always have an ask, you know, so the ask would be different you know, according to where I'm at. The ask might be, you know, we need you to partner with us on this for this event. We need you, uh, you know, to show up as a mentor. We need you uh, to uh, have access to your distribution system so we can get some information out. So always thinking about your audience and what that ask is going to be. So, you know, those are the basic elements. Make sure that you say your name. A lot of people even forget to say their name when they're pitching, you know, share something about what's motivating you. Um, you know, usually I would talk about a problem too. That's a, a good way uh, to pitch is start with what the problem and then what your solution is. And then make sure you get that ask in at the end. And so, so I would have a lot of different pitches according to what I'm, am I pitching, you know, to try to bring some more resources to the work that we do. We're pretty scrappy at our social entrepreneurship committee at Wayne State. We do an awful lot of work with very little, you know, uh, resources. And so, um, versus if I, if I was pitching for something else. Dominique's really the, the person who's great at training on pitching. So all of my students, I say, hey, if you want to learn to pitch, like a formal pitch deck, go to Dominique. She's got the technology down. So we've been fortunate to bring you in to, to teach other students how to pitch. Because um, you had a lot of success, I think, in learning how to pitch you know, through some of the competitions that you belong to. Recognizing that pitching is a really scary thing. We just ran a, um, we just did our first uh, Wayne State Soup, which is a micro crowdfunding uh, platform for kind of an entry level, like how to get on the entry level ramp around a creative idea that uh, started in the community here in Detroit and now is run by the Build Institute, a uh, incubator uh, and a program that offers business development classes, technical assistance and access to capital. And I give it out, you know, really give it up to, to folks who get up and pitch because a lot of us have creative ideas, but to kind of put ourselves on center stage is an extremely difficult thing to do. Um, and so I just always think that, you know, it's about uh, trying to create that impact. So I'm not trying to, you know, further myself in any kind of way. So it, it feels a little bit more natural uh, in terms of, having that um, really strong foundation around advocacy and social work. So advocacy and pitching feel very similar to me. So like reframing it and a social advocacy space feels very similar to me. But I think it's really important to know what you want, like, uh, you know, before you go into any kind of um, a venue or before you go talk with a real, uh, you know, someone on a call, to kind of figure out, you know, what is it that I want to get out of this conversation or who is it that I want to meet? Those things are important to be a little bit more purposeful with your uh, networking behavior. So, yeah, having that ask is definitely so important. I think when we um, run programs or workshops uh, for like undergraduate students, that's definitely something we've placed an emphasis on because a lot of people will go in there and um, they'll they'll land a meeting with someone who they've really been meaning to talk to but then at the end of it it's like you could either leave with like another connection to someone else that you know 
they can give you access to or like another resource or you can just leave the meeting and then and then that's it and you hopefully have another conversation with them so that's definitely so important um in terms of networking obviously you've done a lot at the school to put together an annual conference so would love to have you talk more about that i have been to one myself dominique is super involved in organizing those with you um so yeah would love for you to share more about that because they are awesome yeah so the we formed a social entrepreneurship committee at the school of social work so the work really comes from the committee and we're been a dedicated uh, group of folks uh, dominique has been there uh, from the uh, almost the start of the committee, uh, as soon as you came on as a as a student, and and continues to work uh, on that committee. But what we were recognizing was it's really important to create a space where people can come together because social entrepreneurship is growing and more identif you know identifiable. But a lot of people come into it not knowing, oh, I'm actually a social entrepreneur. You know what I'm doing fits that, and so. We wanted to create a space really for practitioners and would-be social entrepreneurs and existing social entrepreneurs to share best practices, share ideas, share challenges. And our conference is heavily shaped by like social justice and equity uh, issues. And so we try to look at uh, an area and you know invite folks who are really working on transformative change in communities. And so we view social entrepreneurship, there is no one standard definition, but um, my view of it is it includes both social enterprise and social innovation. So we also want to recognize all of those enterprising nonprofits who you know, have been very innovative and been very entrepreneurial, but often don't also get invited to the table. So it's really important for us to have a broad cross-section of um, entities represented. It's a practice conference. So we try to hit on some kind of nuts and bolts of, of business planning, you know, for any would-be uh, entrepreneur, social entrepreneur. So things around access to financing, what financing looks like, you know, what are the different ways you can finance an operation and, and uh, access to it operations, um, you know, inviting people in to talk about operations, big emphasis on uh, impact, like how do you measure impact? How do you tell your impact story? Um, because that's a really important piece in the work that we do. Uh, we, we're not just looking at our bottom line, you know, in terms of our financial sus sustainability, but how effective are you as a social enterprise in solving the problem? And so to do that, you have to understand how to measure um, effectiveness and uh, impact in general. And then you've got to be able to tell your impact story in, in different ways. And then, you know, just inviting different folks in that are working really at, uh, many of them at the very grassroots level of what they're doing. So we've um, started thinking about different themes. This year we'll be working on the theme of the intersection of food and social entrepreneurship. And so big uh, emphasis on food justice, food sovereignty, inviting uh, many of the food entrepreneurs uh, in from the Metro Detroit area to talk about what they're doing. This seems to be a big sector for us in terms of uh, growth and, um, and enterprise. And so, and we know how hard uh, COVID hit the food businesses. And so 
whether it's um, you know labor in, in the food industry or whether it's restaurants or whether it's organizations that are using food to encourage youth entrepreneurship. Uh, we just want to invite a lot of different folks to the table to talk about it. So it's been one of the kind of highlights of We've gotten some really great feedback from our network partners, whether it's the law school or the business school, about how people make connections at that. So it's probably about half students and half, you know, community professionals that come or folks who are interested. And I think it gives people that little nudge to think I can go further in my journey, you know, as a as a social entrepreneur. And so um, really kind of critically important to us. Um, and we're just fortunate to be able to con continue kind of planning that and sponsoring it. I'm sad because over the last two years in COVID, we haven't been able to do anything. We've done some smaller events online, which have been great, but nothing can kind of um, replicate that in-person experience and those kind of organic relationships that develop when you get a lot of people in a space that have similar interests. So it's, it's magical, so. Yeah, so either December, Second, I think, or the ninth, we'll be doing our next conference. Um, and it'll be at the, the business school's always been a great partner at Wayne State and provided space for us. And the law school's a great partner and their uh, student uh, clinic comes in and talks about entity formation. One of the most important things you can think about as an entrepreneur, particularly as a social entrepreneur, because we have a lot of different ways that you can form. And so thinking about, you know, your organizational structure and your governance is a big one. So we always make sure that we cover that. One of the things I love most about the conference is that we've really worked hard to create partnerships with other micro development enterprises like Build Institute. So you can join us on the conference, hear these phenomenal speakers, but actually feel like you're coming out of the conference with tangible things that you could do, right? And take steps. Like, for example, um, MJ has really been the catalyst for social entrepreneurship at Wayne State. So with that partnership, our attendees have the opportunity to then go into uh, Build Social Impact, which is um, eight-week course that provides our attendees or other aspiring or established entrepreneurs with tools, resources, and support community to develop your business plan, to understand a needs assessment or customer discovery, right? And really dive deep into your social venture idea. And it's uniquely tailored for the social worker. So we're using terms um, that make sense. And we're also providing those individuals with um, expanding, I think, their perspective just on social work, because they've been doing a lot of these these financial uh, elements in business, you know, acumen, they just didn't have that word, right, to translate it over into the business world. So um, that's what I love most about uh, the conference that I could say where I've been to certain things before in the past, whether it be conferences or workshops, and I'm like, uh, okay, I, I'm excited about this, but what are my next steps? So um, yeah, and I think through that time too, I've also learned about myself that I am a builder. I enjoy being in the grunt work of things and that hustle and bustle and figuring out what that looks like. Um, and MJ has really helped me always understand just to be more intentional before I make moves and to understand what's the strategy behind it. Um, 
often as visionaries, when you're a founder, right, you are someone who has huge ideas, but oftentimes you're not sure how it's going to work. So taking the time to really be strategic about how how your next step should be ordered, I think is is uh, really huge. So now I apply that same mindset when I join an organization and volunteer my time or when I'm thinking of making a business decision. So so that's been huge. And MJ, I want to know how do you have a strategy behind how you go from having an idea to the planning and the execution part? Like, do you already have this like rhythm or how do you approach that mindset? Because I think that's so good. Yeah, uh, strategy was one of my, I, I got an award in my MBA program for, for strategy from the Wall Street Journal. So uh, it's just one of those things I really like. I think it goes back to my social work education around thinking uh, about the individual or the organization and the environment. So I'm always like scanning my environment for what's going on. And another uh, kind of core thing around fit you know, just thinking what the strategic fit is. So um, those are the the two things I'm constantly assessing. Like, you know, I'm, I'm looking, I'm taking in information, I'm assessing all the time. And we try to teach folks how to do that, you know, like scanning their environment and thinking about, I mean, some things are uh, just uh, can be technologically taught, like thinking about the industry that you're in. It's one of the things I, you know, still rely on, like Michael Porter's work around five forces and industry analysis, because I work with a lot of students that have good ideas, but one, this is a common phenomenon I see that students come in with an idea without understanding the competition at all. Has anyone done this? Is anyone doing this? And so having them do some sort of like, we don't like the word competition in the nonprofit, so I might call it a comparative analysis instead of a competitive analysis, but it's the same technology. Like who else is out there doing what you're doing? You know, um, according to customers, your target beneficiaries, what are the most important features or benefits of your product or service that they would say are the most important? And then like rate yourself on what your offering is compared to other places. Think about the industry you're in, or the, is the, and it's a shock to a lot of social workers that they're in an industry, but meds and eds are driving our education, I mean, our economy right now, and so they are the new economy, and so you are in an industry, whether you want to recognize it or not, so you might want to understand how the industry works, you know, is it growing, is it flat? What are the barriers to entry in the industry? What's the rivalry look like with the competition? What are some of the issues around suppliers? Like, you know, recently supply chain has really slowed down, you know, so much of our economy just based on some of the challenges with the, the COVID crisis. You know, which, what's, where's the power lie? Is it with suppliers? Is it in the rivalry? Is it with purchasers? what are kind of the threats or substitutes, kind of classic Porter's analysis of, of industry. And I think it's really important to do. So all that, and then just having a strategic, like what is your, you know, what is your, um, uh, your strategy? You know, are you gonna be, when you're working around social entrepreneurship, I mean, one of the strategies that we're starting to see in practice is that you have to, really have a, a competitive you know, niche. You have to be filling something that no one else is filling. And particularly because you're working in areas where markets have failed, 
where there isn't a profitable way to um, to you know design uh, a business um, because the market would already do it. You know, the for-profit area would already do it if it was. So you have to really think about operating in that space where you're offering something so specialized that you can push up your prices and you know do things like that. We see a lot of what I call social staffing. These are social enterprises that are working on, um, they might develop a particular product or service, but the real product or service is helping people who experience marginalization in the, in the labor force find living wage employment and, you know, and stay in that employment. And so to do that, you've really got to be creating something special because you got to push up your prices. So just thinking competitively, like this is where I think business, you know, adopting business principles and understanding business principles uh, and applying them to the social sector is like really critically important. And I don't know, maybe it's, you know, being the youngest of six and figuring out <laughs> how I was going to get the food ran out at the end of the month. So maybe that's where I get my strategy from. I don't know, but um, <laughs> there's just something there that I really like. <laughs> so, so. No, I love that. Yeah, you have to be relentless, right? You have to yeah, to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, I never went without food. I want to say that. Yeah, no, food was gone yeah, really guys, early on. <laughs> her parents always made sure she had food. I'm, I'm just joking. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I love that. Another thing, too, that I think during this process of social entrepreneurship is that many of the things you just mentioned is rooted in social impact value and how to show that. And because traditionally in for-profit, you equate your success and impact value through what profit sales, right? So, or your uh, your profit margins. So I, I love that you touched on that. And earlier you mentioned, actually, I, I made a note of it, but you, you spoke about uh, how many, how many social workers, like you guys were able to hire as well as the the staffing agencies you all you know set up so that's part of your social impact value so if our listeners are just unsure of what that would look like it would be that hey this is the work we put in this that that was our input our output was x y and z you know um, x amount of people have been hired we have staffing agencies across the country and then also we've generated x you know, and, and revenue or so. So I love you spoke about that. Yeah. I mean, it's much easier in the for-profit world. We have clear indicators, you know, of well-established, you know, general accounting principles and clear indicators of financial success. We don't have that in the nonprofit world. We're trying to develop it, but we don't have it. And so thinking about what your impact story is, um, and I find this a challenge for a lot of students. They have a creative idea, but I don't know what problem they're trying to solve. So I really try to push people on what is the problem that you're trying to solve, which is something we do in business, you know, um, really work on, on the needs of solving the problem and um, make sure that there's a match between, I, I want people to stay a little solution agnostic when they're trying to develop, like in the classroom, a business venture or a social venture. It's like focus in on the problem, really understand the problem. There's a lot of different solutions for problems, but, you know, thinking of a creative solution, but it has to match the problem versus, you know, trying to come up with a solution first and then match your solution you're very wedded to, to a problem maybe you 
you know, don't understand that well. And so I think that putting the problem first, really digging, diving in, understanding the problem from the people who experience it, that's so important. You know, you can get a lot out of the, the research literature, you know, secondary analysis, but doing some primary research on, you know, with folks that experience the problem is, is really kind of critical. So, so I think that that is, is very important. And then, you know, job creation has been one of those big things around social impact that, but we've got to dig a little deeper. It can't just be any job. It has to be, you know, a, a sustainable job. We can't just accept that job creation alone is an adequate impact measure because we know that jobs have to, you know, sustain uh, individuals and their families. And so we've got to dig a little deeper for uh, what those jobs look like, you know, and also think about are we, um, are we, you know, fostering uh, empowerment in communities or are we extracting? So anything that's that's extracting, we should really stay away from in our models. We're just replicating some of the challenges with uh, for-profit um, entrepreneurship if we're, you know, creating any kind of dependency or creating any kind of extractive wealth. And we, it's, the work we do is so much harder, you know, because we've got all these different stakeholders and all these different guidelines. And so I think it's extremely challenging. And if there was an easy answer, again, the market would have done it by now. So we're work, working in a lot of areas where markets have failed and we're trying to create value for so many different key stakeholders. So it's extremely challenging work to do. And that's where you have to be strategic, you know, to be successful. So. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that, you know, economics teaches us just there's an opportunity cost. So if I'm over here working on this, maybe I'm adding some value, but if I'm not really solving the problem, then it's an opportunity cost because I'm using my time and talent and resources and for something that might feel good, but probably isn't addressing the root issue, you know, so trying to dig it down to those root issues is really important. Um, yeah, because although it feels good, is it really is it really like moving the needle, right? So that's good. That's something that I'm I'm working on as well is really looking at the root cause and like how are the inputs that I'm creating delivering effective outputs? Like what what's the overall north star in that? And um, as we wrap up. I wanted to just share a few points on pitching because that, that just reminded me of pitching and I'm always an advocate for pitching, but it's so important that you go into the pitch having your North Star because when you receive feedback from the pitches, what you don't want is to come out of each pitch that you have. And now you're like, I don't even know what my mission is. I don't. So. It's just important that you go into with a strategic mindset of, hey, this is really the goal. And perhaps that goal should be, you know, um, MJ mentioned fostering, empowering communities, right? Like what, that's your overall end goal, right? So how are you, how are you getting there? So whatever that is for you, how you plan to foster those, um, it, it foster and empower those communities, like just make sure you have that. And you're taking everything that, that the judges are saying or your mentors, whatever, with a grain of salt, because no one knows, right? Like, oh, I think, I think that is so important. Yeah. Like one of the things you asked is like, what advice would you give to an entrepreneur? And, uh, 
we don't know. I mean, you know, venture capital people don't know. Like people who are deemed as the experts, experts miss a lot of opportunities because they don't see what the entrepreneur sees. And so I think that in some way you've got to, you know, be able to take in input, take in people's creative ideas, but not pivot every time that you like really stick with one of the things we know about successive entrepreneurs is they have somewhat blinders on, you know, they're like so passionate about their idea that they're not even looking. Sometimes that could be a detriment, but sometimes you need that because people are going to pull you off. There's going to be the haters and there's going to be people that think they're helping you, but are really pulling you off. And so you have to have some sort of filter to take the information that's important, but not to, you know, be so scattered that you can't, you're going to get information and feedback from your system. And, you know, some of that is going to shape your direction and, and you need to be open to that. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying that um, a lot of people that put themselves out at experts, I, I have a hard time like in the classroom because I have to deliver some feedback that sounds kind of negative. And, you know, part of it just comes out like, you know, very matter of fact, I'm probably a lot nicer than like if you pitched in front of, in front of some VC people, but I always do a caveat as I don't really know. <laughs> None of us really know. <laughs> so, you know, if you believe in something and you believe in it enough to keep, you know, putting your time and investment in it and bringing others to the table who are key stakeholders, you just have to have a filter for some of that because you you are going to be it. And, you know, we have these great examples. We have these billboards all over Detroit now from the woman who started the lip bar who was famously told, you know, from the shark VC person that this is never going to work, you know, and he had no idea that there, you know, the market that was out there because he's not in that space, you know, nor was he interested in understanding anything about that space. And so there are going to be those people. And if you, you know, she had all the requisite knowledge and skills uh, and she believed in what she was doing. And so, you know, and she proved everybody wrong. You know, she proved them wrong. And so um, I love these billboards all over Detroit with this story because I think it's, it just shows, you know, that we as the quote unquote experts, you know, really don't know. <laughs> there's some things that are known, you know, and there's some things we can't know. And there, you know, and there's some things that people with their personal experience and their knowledge and skills can see that we don't see. And so I think that's, and so many times, you know, markets have been discounted because they're not the majority dominant, you know, white market for products or services. And so they get discounted and, and we, um, you know, I mean, that's just flat out, you know, structural discrimination and oppression and, and, uh, you know, part of those entrepreneurs are proving that these things are wrong. And so, uh, they're changing the dial on things. I love yeah. it. So. Oh, I love those billboards too. Yeah. Yeah. And women, and women, we have three entrepreneurs on this thing. We get discounted so often. I'm, I'm really interested in the research right now, just digging in ontologically about how entrepreneurship is even viewed. There's so much time and attention in the research literature about, you know, these gazelles or unicorns or venture capital and a lot of discounting about kind of everyday entrepreneurship, which is more the norm. And, um, a lot of kind of what are male-centered principles around entrepreneurship, very male-focused. And then we try to judge women entrepreneurs by, you know, what is uh, what we've given as 
to be um, reality, which is not reality, it's socially constructed. So I'm really interested in taking more of a feminist standpoint in my, in my research around um, uh, barriers that women face and, and how to be successful around uh, promoting uh, women's entrepreneurship and other uh, communities that struggle because I think we just accept a lot of things that if we click on that and like try to unpack what's behind that, you'll find a lot of unquestioned assumptions. And I think it's really, that's the value of research is starting to question what some of these assumptions, you know, have been. So that's kind of driving me now, you know, in my later years is to, to think about how do I increase my tool set to become a, you know, a effective researcher in this area, so. I actually wanted to talk to you exactly about that. So just about forging new paths and um, and really your research and how you landed on um, you know pursuing this PhD to be your new path. Um, one thing that whether you realize it or not, you really helped me do while I was in your class, and I love that class so much. Like yours and David's teaching style together was. It made me so excited to just come in on the weekends, even though classes on the weekends, I was like, yes, like I get to go today and we're gonna we're gonna have like this session where we're just like getting information for like a few hours straight and really learning a lot of valuable stuff about impact investing. Um and at that time I was like dreading working in a traditional software engineering job after graduation. I think I was a junior when I took your class, but I was thinking about that, I'm like, oh man, I'm not sure if this is like the path I want to go down. And I remember coming to you and asking you for advice and mentioning that maybe my next step is like working for a bit and then doing a JD MBA. And within a matter of minutes, I think you asked me like, what is like, what do you think your purpose really is? And like, let that be sort of the helper in your decision making. Um, and even though you probably didn't realize that at the time, I think that conversation really was one of the major moments when I realized, okay, this career is, is, is what I trained for, but I can apply all of that skill set to a problem that I actually really care about. And that has directly impacted me and millions of other people. So I really want to thank you for that. Um, because I actually don't think I've told you that before. Um, but since you've realized, okay, maybe, and maybe you've been thinking about this for a while, but you realized you wanted to go back and get your PhD, I wanted to ask you if there was any single moment when you realized you wanted to go back on, like, one more time to school, um, despite what you've already done, and then if you want to talk more about your research, because that is what you were um, discussing before, and just to know your why. Well, thank you, because that's huge, like that I would have any impact on and uh, but I, I think that's, you know, what puts me in the classroom, um, certainly, and that's where I get my energy from is from the creative ideas. And I think it's particularly important to support entrepreneurs that that don't, you know, one of the things we know about entrepreneurial intention from the research is that there are certain factors that can explain entrepreneurial intention with the knowledge that we have now. And um, the factors are like a personal favorable attitude towards entrepreneurship, which a lot of people come in, you know, they've 
they've been that entrepreneur since they were young or they you know are driven by i think i could do this the other factor is perceived behavioral control so do i feel like i have the self-efficacy we call it entrepreneurial self-efficacy to do this and if you're in business school you probably are thinking i'm here to develop my skills and you know i can do this but you might still be unsure of your skills and so that's one area I think we can have huge influence on. And I'm really motivated by all of those persons that have creative ideas to solve, you know, protracted social problems, but don't necessarily see themselves, you know, as an entrepreneur. So those uh, persons in social work and nursing and education and public health, and, you know, all the areas that happen to be very uh, predominantly female professions that I know that they're coming in with super creative ideas and would really benefit from the help of some more customized entrepreneurship education, really customized for them and for their learning needs. And then the, the other big areas is kind of subjective norms. So do people in your environment encourage you? Um, and we know that subjective norms kind of works through these other two things, a favorable attitude towards entrepreneurship and perceived behavioral control. So in business school, you know, you're gonna get be in an environment where People believe that you know you can be an entrepreneur, but in a lot of other spaces, you're not going to get that you know kind of rich. We call it entrepreneurial munificence. You know, you're not going to get that rich environment that has all these learning opportunities, or that you're hearing the values that people support what you're doing. So, I'm really passionate about that, and really want to understand more about those areas where you know a non-traditional kind of entrepreneurship has and and how we could um, be greater facilitators of people's creative innovative ideas and what would be worse is to be in your subjective norm environment people telling you no you know no that's not a good idea or no entrepreneurship isn't valuable or no you can't do that because you're this or you're that or you have no history of doing this or no one in your family's ever done this and so I think kind of creating that rich environment is so important. And that's really been, I, I wasn't sure I wanted to be a researcher. I know I love program development. I know I love building things. I know I love, you know, leadership. Um, I know I love teaching, but research is, you know, a different kind of skill set, a different uh, um, a toolkit that I didn't necessarily have. And so, um, fortunately, at the School of Social Work, they kind of lowered the barriers uh, to kind of jump into the PhD program by having a um, postgraduate research and evaluation certificate. So I just tested the waters a little. So there's an example of where your environment can shape. You know, I'm not even sure I would have ever decided to get into the PhD program if the organization wouldn't have lowered the barriers by having this postgraduate certificate where I could test out you're taking the same classes as you know any PhD seeing as is this something I really like you know and when you go back in you know to a program a PhD program particularly like later in life but I've noticed this with a lot of my colleagues too you're really proficient in whatever you do you know like you a lot of my colleagues have been practitioners for a number of years very skilled with their clinical. Some of them have expertise in certain areas and in sexual health or um, substance use and abuse treatment or you know general clinical practice. And to put yourself back into an environment where you know you're learning again is an extremely difficult thing to do. And so um, uh, just 
you know, a big uh, shout out to the Wayne State School of Social Work because I feel like I'm in a learning environment that really nurtures me. And that's what I want to create, you know, for others, in particular as persons who, you know, really have creative ideas, are very entrepreneurial in the way they approach problems, but haven't necessarily had, you know, people supporting their entrepreneurial goals or, um, you know, worse off, people questioning, you know, can you do this? Why would you do this? It's hard. Like being an entrepreneur is hard. Like it's dealing with uncertainty. None of us really like uncertainty as, you know, human beings. We're more geared towards stability, I would say, even though our world is so uncertain. And so to put yourself back in that uncertain environment is, um, you know, one of those things that's extremely challenging to do. So I think having positive role models, having mentors, having people that can help guide you is, is again, just like critically important. So, so that's what my area of research I'd like to focus in on. I've, I just uh, have designed a study with a couple of my colleagues to look at the entrepreneurial tensions of social workers, because we know nothing about them. Um, there has been a lot of research on entrepreneurial intentions, but nothing on like um, this particular group. And so I want to understand how do social workers come to entrepreneurship? You know, what are their motivations? Where do they experience barriers? What are the facilitators and how we could develop more customized? Um, I, we have like 800 plus accredited social work schools across the country. We graduate 45,000 social workers a year. So for me, it's a huge human capital thing. If we can get more of those social workers thinking entrepreneurially about solving problems, then maybe some of these problems would actually, you know, get solved. And so, um, so it's uh, that's what's guiding me kind of towards the end of my career is how could I, you know, add to the research that would shape more of that work around uh, empowering folks to have the kind of knowledge, skills, and abilities to use themselves as an entrepreneur out in the in the world. And I think it's important because our, you know, we've seen all these spikes in our, we always see spikes in our um, economy and our, our labor. So I think, you know, being able to feel comfortable that you can create your own job is huge, you know, and not just feeling dependent on uh, others to create a job for you. It's like, uh, it's a form of empowerment, so. Yeah, it, it really is. And you touched on something I thought was so special. You sharing that it's it's really, a, I think a part of your why is identifying those individuals who who are passionate about a cause and nurturing them. And one thing that I think you are phenomenal at is really empowering people and seeing them when at the time they may not see themselves. Um, and I know through my own journey of um, entrepreneurship and shifting my mindset from being an employee and only thinking I was good at certain things because how we equate our success and, and worthiness oftentimes is through the promotion or the job, what that looks like, right? And how sexy the title is. But it was often those times when I didn't see myself as adequate or worthy. And you really empowered me. And um, for you, I, I guess I see it as you seeing my, me as that, me not being there. And really working to push that gap to now understand like, wow, I am worthy. I am adequate. 
I can do this. And I think for me, that's been such a huge um, push and motivation for me to really accept myself and know that I can do these things. And I think that's a huge part of of your purpose that I've seen and and a part of your why. And I thank you for that. And that's why I admire you so much for that because it pushes me to always see that in others and, and, and be a part of that change, you know, for them and pushing them towards that. So would you say that's a part of, you know, your why? I don't know if that's something that you've seen yourself. We, we tell you all the time how much we love you and how much we appreciate you. But um, I get a bit emotional even saying that because I just appreciate you so much. <laughs> oh, wow. That's huge. Thank you for that. I think I got that just to go full circle for my mom who, you know, my mom was like a sage. She would sit and people would just come to her and like, you know, sit around her and like glean whatever. Um, and she was always so, uh, she, I spent a lot of time on the road with her. A lot of these offices we opened, we opened on a budget. So we would drive everywhere. And so, you know, we'd be in the middle of, you know, Oklahoma or something on a fairly deserted road heading down to Texas and I would hear these stories of her when she was young and she was so fearless like she told me a story about her um tap dancing at like the little community fair I'm like you were a tap dancer and she's like no <laughs> you know I just like the sound that the shoes made <laughs> so she got up for the whole community and tap dance and she never had any lessons and I'm like oh my God, my mom's been tap dancing her way around life. Like she was so fearless, like couldn't, you couldn't. Um, so she just had this like spirit about her. And I think I, you know, one of the things is she often called me and I got this from her, like being the honeybee, like I can see resources out there and I can see people and how do you connect these things? And so I like doing that. I get a lot of gratification out of it. You know, it means a lot to me. I think like a true test, I teach leadership is one of the classes I teach at, at Wayne State, social work leadership. And I think, you know, one of the true tests of leaders is not like what you've done in your life, but how many people can you name off that you've impacted? Like that's a real leader, you know, that that shares whatever they have with others so that they, you know, can be successful in their journey. And so that's like my litmus test for leadership is, um, you know, how many people what can I, you know, really have some sort of impact with. And so I try to remind myself of that. I don't always live up to that. And like, sometimes I have to remember it. Like, sometimes I feel like, you know, whether you're delivering feedback, you know, it can feel negative. That's the worst part of teaching is the grading and stuff. It's horrible. Um, so when I hear stories like that, you know, it's really meaningful for me, but I get all this gratification out of what other people are doing, you know, just just warms my heart, you know, what other people are doing, how they're using themselves. And I think, you know, version 2.0 of social entrepreneurship is a lot of version 1.0 of social entrepreneurship where people coming up with creative ideas and coming into communities they didn't know that well. And, um, you know, I'm glad to see kind of version 2.0 of social entrepreneurship is like, how do you promote people already within communities to solve their own problems? You know, back to that example that you gave when you first met me, I was working in uh, refugee, um, the Syrian crisis, which is still going on, was was happening. And I saw all these amazing advocates who 
were willing to risk their lives, you know, like face bullets for what they believed in, you know, human dignity. And I thought to myself, like, wow, if these people can, you know, face bullets, like I don't have any other choice, but to be involved, you know, like what, what kind of skill set do I have that I can give? And it's not, it was not about me coming in because, you know, these Syrians, you know, were in control of their own destiny. And so for me, it was more about like, how can I be an ally and take those resources I have and help the people, you know, that are most impacted by something. And so, you know, that just always sticks with me. It's not about what you do. It's like how you can, you know, if you have resources, then you need to share those with other people. You need to be an ally to other communities that have experienced, you know, oppression or concentrated disadvantage or those kind of areas. And so I'm glad to see the field of social entrepreneurship is kind of moving in that direction. I don't think we're there, but we need to keep moving in that direction about building real power, you know, and power needs to be nested in the communities that are most affected by a problem. So they know the solutions. It's just like getting the resources to folks that already know what the solutions are. So for themselves, that makes sense for themselves. So um, so that's like kind of critically important to me as well. So, but thank you for that. You make, make me cheerful, both of you. So, so. You talked about like communities, how they know themselves best. And I kind of want to take that in go into how small projects can create waves of change and one thing i remember very vividly from um the class that i took with you is the lectures and the discussions we would have about smallholder farms and how ripples of impact coming from just one individual or one family from like their plot or a few plots can strengthen like the entire economy around them on a larger scale um and then you talked about how um while you were at Goodwill, you were personally involved in a lot of microenterprise development in low-income and marginalized communities. Um, so you really understand the power of people and the power of the individual um, and just of what seem to be small projects and how they can create these waves of change over time. Uh, so with that, I was hoping that you could help us wrap up by sharing what you hope the next generation of these individuals, these social impact, um, these social entrepreneurs can bring to the table in terms of impact and how we can set them up for success because you've done that for so long. I do believe a lot in personal agency. I wouldn't be a social worker if I didn't think that, you know, people had uh, self-determination and agency to not only just react to their environment, but to enact their environment, like to shape their environment. It's it's uh, critical to who I am. At the same time, people face such huge barriers. Like there's, uh, we've seen it over the last two years, you know, uh, with COVID, like all the existing structural barriers that exist. And so I think, um, you know, uh, people can make huge differences with the ventures that they start but we also need to work more in collective impact. I don't think there's any one organization that can, you know, deal with as, as wildly successful as like a Grameen Bank has been in microfinance and and all of that kind of sister organizations that Dr. Muhammad Yunus started at a Grameen to, to deal with some of the longstanding issues in uh, Bangladesh and then, you know, throughout other parts of the world. 
uh, poverty is such a complex problem that it's going to take all of us working in collective impact. So I think systems entrepreneurship is something I'm really interested in, in terms of how do we all work together, you know, to change systems. And we've had some really good success stories, I think, recently, like the whole reframing of human trafficking is one example that I give that, you know, we're no longer talking about uh, trafficking. Uh, human slavery is at an all-time high um, and there's all different kinds of form of it, but one of them is like sex trafficking. And, uh, you know, somebody young, uh, it's largely something that affects women around the world and uh, affects a huge number of young women, like uh, women who aren't um, even of majority age. And so reframing uh, things from prostitution to, to trafficking, on a on a systems level has helped change laws we've seen it change laws here in michigan and um and when you start changing attitudes and changing perceptions and then changing laws you get into real transformative change and so one of the things i like to remind you know entrepreneurs as as you work on your problem as you work on your venture how can you be working with others you know and and models of collective impact and this is one of the things I love about training as a social worker, because unlike some other helping professions that focus more on the individual, we focus on the individual and the environment. And so as a social worker, you might be clinical in the nature of your practice, but you can't ever negate, um, you know, if you start seeing a lot of folks that are experiencing a, a similar problem, what can you do on the advocacy level on the legislative level to change policy or to change your organizational policies or legal policies. Um, and so I think it's really important that we're doing a lot more work around ecosystems and entrepreneurship building. And I think we all need to think about, you know, our place in the ecosystem and how we can strengthen the overall ecosystem and how we can work with others. Um, and this is where I think business is pretty good. You know, I often think business does a better job than the nonprofit world about, about understanding the strength of a sector. Like how do you increase a sector strength? Um, I think in the nonprofit world, we often have this mind of scarcity, you know, that there's scarce resources. And, and so, uh, whereas business has a mind of, you know, scale and expansion and what could we do with the resources and, um, and so um, I think it's really behooves all of us to be working with others, to be working on our project, but to be working with others that are, you know, changing systems. So thinking about part of your time being dedicated to advocacy and dedicated to legislative action or, you know, dedicated to dismantling structural oppression, whether it's sexism or racism or homophobia or all the other kind of areas of, of structural oppression that that a person's experience. And so I think that's like kind of really critically important. And we're going to see a lot more, I think, around systems entrepreneurship. It's not just going to be the celebration of an individual entrepreneur or social entrepreneur doing something, but how are we all working together? And the nonprofit world has done a pretty good job in collective impact. And so I think we've got something to learn from them about, you know, how do you do that? So so I think that's important. We're probably going to see more funding, maybe like the nonprofit world foundations support a lot of collaborative grants to get more nonprofits working together. I think we'll see more of that as the evolution of social entrepreneurship. The other thing we don't know about social entrepreneurship, even though 
it's a growing field is how well it works. You know, is it working any better than what we had before? So there has to be more research in the area of, um, you know, are we delivering on our promises about um, delivering impact? And so that that's an important part too. So.